Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the National Podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcast and give us any constructive feedback. This article is from The National, date 17th June 2022. From the Culture section. Dandelion Festival. Glasgow event encourages us to grow our own food. By Lorraine Wilson. Food at outdoor music festivals usually involves a reluctant purchase of expensive falafel and long lines at the donut stand when late night munchies kick in. However, this weekend kicks off a completely new approach to the relationship between food and music, with the free-to-attend Dandelion Festival taking place in Glasgow's Kelvin Grove Park. Starting today, the three-day event is part of a wider programme that aims to bring us together in a concerted effort to grow our own food. It follows the growing cycle from April to September, And although there have been some smaller scale events already, this festival hopes to be one of the major drivers of the message. Throughout the summer and across the country, there will be activities and events to give away seeds, plants and bugs, along with advice on how to grow your own. They will culminate around harvest time with a three day festival in Inverness. This weekend is also about music. The event is presented by Glasgow Life and Celtic Connections and curated by music director Donald Shaw. Jenny Niven, Dandelion's executive producer, has also arranged talks, performances and interactive activities. There will be three stages, the Pavilion, Orchard and Dandelion, on a site in the south of Kelvin Grove Park, next to the entrance from Royal Terrace and Park Grove Terrace. At the centre is the Pavilion of Perpetual Light. Standing at 10 metres tall, the pavilion was created from 60 miniature vertical farms, one metre by one metre accelerated growing cubes, which will form a giant structure with a built-in stage acting as a backdrop to performances. The Dandelion Festival is just one of many events held by Unboxed, an initiative running across the UK this year to celebrate creativity and bring people together at large, free events, installations and digital experiences. In addition to the Dandelion Festival, other unboxed events that are set to take place in Scotland include Dream Machine and Pollinations, both in Edinburgh, Green Space, Dark Skies at the Cairngorms National Park, and story trails in both Dundee and Dumfries. About Us, a light and sound show, opened unboxed programme of Scottish events in Paisley earlier this year. For the Dandelion team, there is a definite connection between the growth cycle of our food and how creativity grows within the artist. 
the choice of music and performers was made with that in mind. The musical lineup includes Admiral Fallow, Darlingside, Les Amazones de Afriques, Newton Faulkner, Rachel Sermani, and This is the Kit, among many others. Talks and events will cover the themes of sustainability, community growing and climate action with Abby Morden, Mo Wilde and Pam Warhurst among the participants. For me, there has always been a community connection between food and music, Dandelion's music director Donald Shaw said. Even from that experience of being a musician abroad in a place where you're struggling with a little bit with the language. If there are two things you don't need to talk about its food and music. Celtic Connections has had a good while to establish its identity, so getting the message across about the intentions of Dandelion has been a new challenge for the entire team. Also, the idea that a garden isn't required to grow at home. Boxes and grow bags can achieve the same aims. The mission of Dandelion is to show how that can be done. You can always come together around the table to share a meal and share a tune. I like that aspect and there's parallel with the idea of food sustainability and empowering people to grow ideas. We should be empowering people to grow their own food and to be able to play music and perform music at any point. We should think of it as a kind of social healer. That article was by Lorraine Wilson. This article is from The National. Date 20th June 2022 from the news section. Water shortage alert in place across parts of Scotland by Adam Robertson. Parts of Scotland are being warned about potential water shortages due to a deterioration in conditions at the start of summer. An alert level warning has been put in place for almost the entire east coast of Scotland in response to the threat of more hot and dry weather. The Scottish Environmental Protection Agency, SEPA, said groundwater levels are falling and are very low at some monitoring locations, while river flows also remain low for this time of year. Head of Water Planning at SEPA, Nathan Critchlow-Watton, said In March this year, SEPA warned that water scarcity conditions could deteriorate quickly if dry weather continues. We are seeing that happen now in the east of Scotland as warning levels increase and expand to more areas each week. We have been working with businesses to ensure they have a plan to deal with water scarcity that protects their operations and the environment. This should include carrying out checks of their equipment, considering upcoming water needs and following best practice such as irrigating at night. However, SEPA did also confirm that drinking water supplies remained at a healthy level. ALERT is the second ranking on SEPA's water scarcity scale sitting below moderate scarcity and above early warning. The majority of Scotland remains at an early warning level during the summer months. SEPA did warn that the level could rise to moderate scarcity if dry periods continue, which means users 
could be encouraged to reduce the volume of water they use or temporarily suspend abstractions. Critchlow Wotton said, Water is a finite resource, even in Scotland, and pressures on the water environment will only get worse with climate change. By following our advice and working together, we can all play a part to reduce the impacts. That article was by Adam Robertson. From the National, Tuesday the 21st of June 2022, from the news section, Loman Banks, Ross Greer to lead debate on controversial resort plan, by Steph Barron, multimedia political journalist. A debate is set to be held over a totally inappropriate second attempt to build an exclusive resort on the shores of Loch Lomond in the Scottish Parliament on Wednesday. Greening MSP Ross Greer, who campaigned fiercely against the initial proposal from Yorkshire-based Flamingoland, will lead the debate which he says will give MSPs a chance to reflect on the residents' concerns. Flamingoland has set out a new proposal for a tourist spot in the area after the last one was withdrawn in 2019 following the submission of some 60,000 objections. While campaigners have been successful in having the ancient woodland at Drunkenham Woods removed from the plans this time, the revised proposal would still see the development on a huge scale, including 127 self-catering lodges of varying sizes, a hotel with up to 60 beds, a water park, a craft brewery and a monorail. Flamingoland said it has now adopted an enhanced ecological approach to protect the local environment. Greer said, I'm pleased to have secured the debate, which will give MSPs the chance to explore the issues with Flamingoland's plans and reflect on the concerns of local residents. While there are some welcome concessions from the developer this time, especially with the exclusion of Drumkinnon Woods from the plans, the proposals are still on a scale which is totally inappropriate and which would have huge consequences for Balloch and Loch Lomond. As Western Bartonshire Council pointed out last time, this would put huge pressure on local roads which already struggle to cope during tourist seasons. I'm still concerned by the effect this largely enclosed resort would have on existing local businesses who could see trade drawn away from them. And that's not to mention the impact such a huge development will have on the world famous natural landscape of Loch Lomond, the very thing tourists come to see in the first place. One of the things which makes Balance so special is how it makes Loch Lomond accessible to anyone who can afford a train fare from Glasgow. Putting an exclusive resort in the way of that would be a step backwards. The motion to be, to be debated on Wednesday reads that the Parliament notes the reported application lodged by the Yorkshire-based theme park operator, Flamingoland, for the development of a so-called luxury resort in the banks of Loch Lomond at Balloch. Understand that this is Flamingoland's second application for development on this site, with the first application reportedly having withdrawn, following a record 60,000 objections being lodged with the Loch Lomond and the Trossachs National Park Authority. Congratulates local residents, and the Save Loch Lomond campaign for, it believes, having protected the ancient woodland at Drumkinnon Woods, which it understands is no longer proposed for location for dozens of guest lodges, but remains concerned about a number of reported issues with the current application, including its overall scale, public asset access to Drumkinnon Woods, and the wider site, pressure on local roads and the principle of selling public land at one of Scotland's most famous locations to a private developer. 
Jim Patterson, development director for the local for the Roman Banks project, has said the project would be beneficial to the local community. He said, after an extensive period of reflection, community liaison and enhanced ecological studies to make Loman Banks the best it can be, I am delighted to be submitting our plans and taking forward a proposal which we believe is both robust and of benefit to the local community. He said Flamingoland wanted to complement what makes Loch Lomond so attractive to visitors. And that article was by Steph Braun. From the National, Tuesday the 21st of June 2022, from the politics section, Scottish Greens fined by electoral watchdog over late accounts, by Abby Garton Crosby, multimedia political reporter. The Scottish Greens have been fined over £2,000 for breaching electoral rules, it has been revealed. The Electoral Commission, EC, wrote in its concluded investigations that the penalty was because the statement of accounts for 2020 was delivered late. It is a legal requirement for all political parties to to submit their annual accounts on time or they will be charged. The Greens, led by Patrick Harvey and Lorna Slater, said that the error occurred due to late documentation coming from a third party and said they are confident it won't happen again. The party were given a £2,300 penalty, which they must pay by July 13th. It comes just 10 months after the Scottish Greens and SNP signed the historic cooperation agreement, which saw Harvey and Slater become ministers in the Scottish Government. The EC's investigation log reads, The party's 2020 annual statement of accounts were delivered late. A sanction was appropriate in this case in line with our enforcement policy. Louise Edwards, Director of Regulation at the Electoral Commission, said It is important for transparency that voters have timely and accurate information about political parties' finances. The requirements are clear, so it is always disappointing when they are not met. Where we find that offences have been committed, we take into consideration a range of factors when deciding the level of sanction, as set out in our enforcement policy. A spokesperson for the Scottish Greens said, We regret that due to documentation from a third party being received late, our statement of accounts for 2020 was not submitted in time. Our accounts received a clean audit and we are confident the problem will not reoccur. And that article was by Abby Garton Crosby. From the National, Tuesday the 21st of June 2022, from the Politics section, Inside the Tory Summer Ball, where dinner with PM sold for £120,000. By Hamish Morrison, political reporter. Tory apparatchiks and government ministers gathered on Monday night for a party fundraiser where shooting weekends and dinners with grandees were auctioned off. The Tory Summer Ball was held at the v Museum in South Kensington, London, on Monday night and featured a band playing ABBA songs as well as speeches from the Prime Minister, Michael Gove and party co-chairman Ben Elliott. Mega-rich donors, ministers, party staffers and others numbered around 250 and arrived at 7pm for a drinks reception before dinner. A dinner with former Prime Minister Theresa May and David Cameron, as well as Boris Johnson, sold for £120,000 as attendees dined on the starters of salmon tartar, mains of beef with asparagus and passion fruit meringues were served for dessert. After their starters, guests were subjected to a speech from Michael Gove, 
and then asked for cash donations to the party. Former party treasurer Howard Lees asked people to stand if they wanted to donate £500 to his efforts to raise cash to hold onto 80 marginal seats and gain a further 20 at the next general election, reports Politico. Those on their feet were then asked to remain standing if they wanted to up that to £1,000. A band wearing jazzy outfits soundtracked the event and played ABBA hits. One source present told Politico, It was like a school disco band. There were one or two people making slightly boogie-looking moves, but no one was fully committed to dancing. If there's one thing the country thinks the Tories do well, it's throwing parties. And ironically, this wasn't much of one. It almost felt cultish. The mood was dampened slightly by museum workers with the PCS union protesting outside, accompanied by former Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell. Other prizes sold off were an African safari trip for £65,000, a shooting weekend for £37,000, wine tasting for £30,000 and tickets to a Chelsea v Arsenal game for £5,000. The website reports most of the action had wound up by 10.30pm with ministers making an early exit to be fresh for cabinet on Tuesday morning. And that article is by Hamish Morrison. The National News on Wednesday the 22nd of June. Drone technology to help rural and remote patients. An article written by Jane McLeod. A partnership between the NHS and an airport owner could see drone technology harnessed to improve the quality of care delivered to people living in remote and rural parts of Scotland. The Calus Consortium is led by AGS Airports and funded by Innovate UK as part of Phase 2 of the Future Flight Challenge. Since December 2020, clinical leadership has been provided by NHS Ayrshire and Arran to explore possibilities in the west of Scotland. In recent months, NHS Grampian has led collaborations with other NHS boards and the Scottish Ambulance Service to apply for Future Flight Challenge Phase 3 funding on a once-for-Scotland basis. This next phase could see the increased testing of drones in healthcare as part of a medical logistics solution across Scotland. Using drones to enhance the current logistics service and test the transportation of laboratory samples, blood products, chemotherapy and medicine delivery, the project will explore the potential to improve diagnostic and treatment times, as well as improve services for those whose care is dependent on rail, ferry or airline timetables. Fiona Smith, Group Head Aerodrome Strategy and Kalis Project Director, said... Kalis has brought together leading partners across the country, which has the potential to completely revolutionise the way in which healthcare services are delivered in Scotland. Using drones could reduce waiting times for test results, speed up the delivery of critical medical supplies and provide equity of care between urban and remote rural communities. Hazel Dempsey, Innovation Programme Manager at NHS Grampian, said... Our innovation hub is exploring whether or not drone technology could be usefully used as a way of delivering care to people who live in remote, rural and island locations. The Scottish Ambulance Service has also highlighted the use of drones in the transportation of automated external defibrillators and assessment of crash and incident sites. This project intends to position the United Kingdom and NHS Scotland as a leader in the third revolution in the aviation industry. An article written by Jane McLeod. The National News on Wednesday the 22nd of June. 
university staff to go on strike amid pay dispute. An article written by Frankie Bonfanti. Members of the University and College Union, or UCU, at the University of Dundee will go on strike today amid a long-running dispute over pay, conditions and cuts to the university's pension scheme. The strike follows 18 previous days of strike action this academic year and a marking and assessment boycott running from May. Last month, Joe Grady, General Secretary of the UCU, wrote to the UK government's higher education minister, Michelle Donnellan, accusing several university employers, including Dundee, of threatening or pursuing plans to withhold 100% pay for staff taking part in action short of a strike, despite staff performing the vast majority of their duties. Mary Senior, UCU Scotland's official, said university bosses are deducting 100% of pay for staff taking part in the boycott, which has led to the dispute escalating to an additional day of strike action. Universities UK, the representative of university employers, forced through cuts to the university's superannuation scheme, which the UCU says will see 35% slashed from a typical staff member's guaranteed retirement income. The UCU is demanding that employers revoke the cuts, adding that university employers have also refused to meet their demands over pay and working conditions. The union is also demanding an end to pay inequality, use of zero hours and other insecure contracts, and meaningful action to tackle unmanageable workloads, as well as a £2,500 pay rise for all university employees. The union estimates that inflation means that pay is now down by more than a quarter in real terms since 2009. Ms Senior added, Cuts to pensions, low pay, insecure contracts and exhausting workloads have pushed staff at Dundee and across the UK to breaking point. The employer's refusal to address the issues that are blighting higher education and to allow the disputes to continue is hugely disappointing. Unless they take action to resolve the disputes, then we'll see more disruption into the next academic year. An article written by Frankie Bonfanti. The National Politics on Wednesday the 22nd of June. Ian Blackford releases statement on leaked Patrick Grady recording. An article written by Laura Webster, News and Features Editor. SNP Westminster leader Ian Blackford has spoken out about the leaked recording of him telling MPs to offer Patrick Grady as much support as possible after his suspension for inappropriate behaviour. After days of silence, Mr Blackford joined fellow MP Amy Callaghan in releasing a statement apologising for the comments made in the audio clip which was released to the Daily Mail over the weekend. Mr Blackford said it was of deep regret that a teenage SNP staffer had been subject to Mr Grady's actions in the first place and said an external review of support available to party staff would be launched. As SNP Westminster leader, I have a duty of care to all of our staff, Mr Blackford wrote. That's why I deeply regret that a member of staff was subject to inappropriate behaviour. It was completely unacceptable and should never have happened. I'm sorry that it did. Staff must have full confidence that the group takes complaints seriously. In this case, the Independent Complaints and Grievance Scheme investigated what happened. We respect and accept that independent process. He went on. More than that, however, staff have a right to feel fully supported when a complaint is made. I regret that the complainant does not feel that this is the case. 
The way that the situation has played out publicly over the last few days, including recordings from the parliamentary group, has caused distress to the complainant, amongst others, and I'm sorry that that is the case. We will consider all lessons that must be learned to make sure staff have full confidence that they will receive the support they need. As such, I'm initiating an external review of support available to staff to sit alongside the independent advice service and independent complaints process. Raising complaints of this nature is never easy, and I'm determined that staff have the support they need. Ms Callaghan previously issued an apology over her own comments in the recording. In an audio recording leaked to the newspaper of a meeting of SNP MPs, Ms Callaghan is allegedly heard telling her colleagues we should be rallying together around Mr Grady to support him at this time. An article written by Laura Webster. The National News on Wednesday the 22nd of June. Trapped Islanders call for ferry ticket system overhaul. An article written by Ninian Wilson. Scottish island residents are calling for an overhaul of Calmax ticketing system as locals say it's too hard to get aboard ferries in peak tourist season. Community groups from the islands of Mull, Iona and Arran have been increasingly vocal in their criticism of Calmac's first-come, first-served ticket sales, which they say is prejudiced against islanders. According to the Mull and Iona Ferry Committee, the current system favours those who can plan their journeys the furthest in advance for getting spaces, who are usually tourists planning holidays weeks and months before their trip. This leaves islanders finding it difficult to plan every shopping trip or family visit so far ahead of time. Surveys published by community groups have shown overwhelming support for a change to the status quo. Joe Reed, chair of the Mullanayona Ferry Committee, said islanders find themselves trapped during the summer months, unable to get a vehicle ticket because they've all been sold to tourists. This prejudicial system is no longer acceptable. We're treated as second-class passengers on our own lifeline service. Often the trips with shortest notice are the most important. Hospital visits, funerals and livestock movements, for example. All too often, islanders can't make those essential trips because the ferry is full of motorhomes and holiday makers. The Malanayona Ferry Committee worked together with the Aran Ferry Action Group to poll their communities on an alternative system which they say would be much fairer. It's modelled on a system used on the Danish island of Samsø. Like Mullen Aran, Samsø is a popular tourist destination where, if unchecked, tourist demand could prevent islanders from accessing the ferry when they need to. The Samsø ferry company operates two booking lists, one for islanders and one for everyone else. The response from Mull, Iona and Aran communities was overwhelmingly positive. Approximately 30% of the adult population on each island took part in the surveys and 96% supported the proposal. Other Hebridean islands have expressed interest and support for the proposal, including the small island of Col, where a similar survey of more than 50% of households found 96% support for the idea. The surveys revealed numerous individual impacts of the current system. They include people who could not attend funerals and medical trips disrupted or made more expensive, family trips cancelled and business disrupted. Several commenters suggest the issue is so impactful they're contemplating leaving their island. Only around 2% of respondents reported being able to get their first choice of vehicle booking every time, and more than 40% said that they were able to travel when they needed to only rarely. 
As the current system is prescribed by the Scottish Government, any changes would be the prerogative of Transport Scotland. Murray Finch of the Mullanayona Community Trust said, The Transport Minister is now in a receipt of our report and we look forward to government action on this critical island issue. An article written by Ninian Wilson. The National Politics on Wednesday the 22nd of June. Inflation figures extremely worrying for Scotland, says Kate Forbes. An article written by Angus Cochran, multimedia journalist. Scotland's finance secretary has warned the state of the UK's economy is extremely worrying as inflation hit a new 40-year high. The rate of consumer price index inflation rose from 9% in April to 9.1% in May, the Office for National Statistics has announced. The news comes as a further hammer blow to people across the UK struggling with the cost-of-living crisis. Energy bills rose by 54% for the average household at the beginning of April and will remain at this level until October. But forecasts released this week predict that the government cap on energy bills could rise again from an already record-high £1,971 to £2,980 in the autumn. The Bank of England has predicted that inflation will spike at more than 11% in October after the price cap is changed again. It's an extremely worrying outlook, Kate Forbes told the BBC's Good Morning Scotland. This is the highest level of inflation since 1982, but perhaps what's even more concerning is that the Bank of England is predicting that it will continue to rise, reaching double figures in the autumn. She added, And we also know that the inflation rate is essentially higher for the poorest households because there's a greater component of their weekly bills that's spent on food, on fuel, which is where we're seeing the highest price increases. The inflation increase was in large part driven by the increase in food prices, which added more than 0.2 percentage points to the inflation number, the Office for National Statistics said. Clothing and footwear prices help keep a lid on inflation, while recreation and culture prices also pulled it downwards. Ms Forbes continued, Everybody's contending with increases, but quite clearly those who are earning the least are facing the greatest challenges. The SNP minister pointed to measures in this year's Scottish budget to help ease the burden on struggling families, including uprating all social security benefits at the rate of inflation at the time of the budget in April. However, the rate of inflation has now soared by a further 3.1%. The Finance Secretary pointed to a myriad of support, including the Scottish Child Payment and Council Tax Reductions for pensioners. She added, but that doesn't take away from the fact that families are struggling and ultimately the UK government, who I speak to on a constructive basis, hold most of the powers needed to tackle this. Powers over energy, powers over the minimum wage, powers over social security spending. Chancellor Rishi Sunak insisted his government is doing all it can to alleviate pressure on those worst affected by the economic crisis. He said, I know that people are worried about the rising cost of living, which is why we've taken targeted action to help families, getting £1,200 to the 8 million most vulnerable households. We're using all the tools at our disposal to bring inflation down and combat rising prices – We can build a stronger economy through independent monetary policy, responsible fiscal policy which doesn't add to inflationary pressures, and by boosting our long-term productivity and growth. The Labour Party said the hardship of millions of people was not a new phenomenon under the Tory government. Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves commented, 
Today's rising inflation is another milestone for people watching wages, growth and living standards continue to plummet. Though rapid inflation is pushing family finances to the brink, the low-wage spiral faced by many in Britain isn't new. Over the last decade, Tory mismanagement of our economy has meant living standards and real wages have failed to grow. SNP Treasury spokesperson Alison Thewlis said, Time and again the SNP has urged the Tories to take real action, but instead they choose to make the rich richer and the poor poorer. This has to end. With Labour failing to take this UK government to task and refusing to consider rejoining our allies within the EU, it's clear that only independence can protect Scotland from a Brexit Britain. The Scottish Greens economy spokesperson Maggie Chapman, MSP, added, With soaring food prices and skyrocketing energy bills, Downing Street has overseen a cost-of-living crisis that is hammering families across the country. These shocking inflation figures shows that the problem will only get worse. A lot of people are really struggling, but Boris Johnson and his colleagues don't care. They're more concerned about the well-being of their cronies and their donors. After years of failures and bad choices, it's clear that the Tories can't be trusted with the economy. It doesn't need to be like this. With independence, we can do things differently and build a fairer and greener economy that works for people and the planet, rather than one that's based on a toxic mix of cuts, austerity and deregulation. An article written by Angus Cochran. The National News on Wednesday the 22nd of June. Moy Estate General Licence Restricted After Red Kite Poisoned. An article written by Emma Sabliak, Digital Reporter. A Highlands estate has had its general licence revoked for three years following evidence wild birds were killed illegally. A poisoned red kite found on Moy Estate in 2020, as well as incidents connected to trapping offences, were among the evidence of wildlife crime presented by Police Scotland. It's understood that traces of a prohibited pesticide were found in the bird of prey. Nature Scott took the decision to restrict land managers' control on numbers of common wild birds, amid a risk of more wildlife crimes taking place. While all wild birds are protected, general licences allow landowners to trap and shoot some common species to protect crops or livestock. Landowners may now apply for individual licences, but they will be closely monitored, the head of wildlife management for Nature Scott said. Donald Fraser added, We consider the information from Police Scotland provides robust evidence that wild birds have been killed or taken, or there's been an intention to do so illegally on this land. Because of this, and the risk of more wildlife crimes taking place, we've suspended the use of general licences on this property for three years, until June 2025. They may still apply for individual licences, but these will be closely monitored. General licences cover situations which are unlikely to have a great impact on conservation, but their abuse can constitute an offence. Restrictions on general licences are also in place on Invercald Estate in the Cairngorms National Park, Lochan Estate in Perthshire and Led Hills Estate in South Lanarkshire. An article written by Emma Sabliak. The National Politics on Wednesday the 22nd of June. First Minister sets date to spell out route map to India Ref 2. A front page article written by Abby Garton Crosby, multimedia political reporter. First Minister Nicola Sturgeon will set out the Scottish Government's route map to a second independence referendum next week, it's been revealed. 
The First Minister will make a ministerial statement to Holyrood on the plans on June the 28th at 20 past two in the afternoon, followed by a question and answer slot from MSPs. It comes ahead of the Scottish Parliament's summer recess, which begins on the 2nd of July. Ms Sturgeon will reveal her plans for how the Scottish Government can move forward with a referendum, while Westminster withholds consent for a Section 30 order, which would allow the Scottish Parliament to legislate as it did in 2014. However, current UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson has refused repeatedly to grant such an order. The Scottish Government revealed the date of the statement during a meeting of the Parliamentary Bureau yesterday. SNP and Green MSPs are expected to confirm it in a vote, with the Unionist parties set to object against it. Last week, Ms Sturgeon and Scottish Greens co-leader and Government Minister Patrick Harvey published the first of a series of white papers in support of independence. The 72-page document was described as a scene-setter for independence and compared the UK to 10 neighbouring independent countries. These factors included wealth, poverty, well-being and the gender pay gap, amongst many other topics. There are more white papers set to follow on issues including currency and the border, with one expected during Parliament's summer recess. During the launch of the first paper during a lengthy press conference, the First Minister was probed on how the Scottish Government intended to proceed without Westminster's permission. The First Minister repeatedly stated that she would set this out very soon, but wouldn't be drawn on what legal advice they'd received, but said they may have to proceed without a Section 30 order. Reports at the weekend suggested Ms Sturgeon is planning to hold a consultative second independence referendum in order to bypass any legal difficulties involved in the union being reserved. Whether or not Holyrood has the power to hold an independence vote is a matter of legal argument. In 2014, the UK government granted a Section 30 order allowing the Scottish government to legislate for the vote without legal problems. However, Boris Johnson has remained steadfast in his opposition to a second vote and the chances of him granting a similar order seem slim. SNP chiefs were said to believe a consultative ballot is within the powers of the Scottish Government and has a better chance of bypassing legal troubles. Meanwhile, the ALBA party is set to urge all yes parties to work together in a renewed campaign for independence. The call is part of a series of resolutions to be debated at a National Council meeting of the party to be held this weekend in Stirling. In a motion titled Scotland's Independence Campaign, Alba National Council members will be asked to commit to campaign together, stating that success in the promised referendum of 2023 will require all of Scotland's pro-independent parties and those in support of Scottish independence to unite behind our common goal of independence. The Constitution Secretary confirmed last week that the referendum is to be held in October 2023, but the ALBA party want Ms Sturgeon to confirm the exact date now, stating that the energy of the independence debate of 2014 came from the setting of the date. An article written by Abby Garton Crosby. The National Politics on Wednesday the 22nd of June Pushed to strip Prince Andrew and disgraced peers of Lord's titles an article issued by the National News Desk. Prince Andrew and peers could be stripped of their titles under a proposed law tabled in Parliament. There's currently no mechanism for such a title to be removed, but calls have been growing for action against Prince Andrew since he paid millions to settle a US civil sexual assault case with his accuser, Virginia Dufresne. 
Rachel Maskell, Labour MP for York Central, is seeking to address the gap in the law via her Removal of Titles Bill. It aims to give the monarch new powers to remove titles or a committee of Parliament to determine that a title should be taken away. Ms Maskell told the PA news agency her constituents have made it clear to her that they wanted the Duke of York's title to be removed, particularly given York's recognition as a human rights city. She argued there's already a culture clash when it comes to conversations around tackling violence against women and girls in the city. Ms Maskell stressed that the proposed legislation would also have a wider implications for individuals like Lord Lebedev, the Russian-born businessman who was awarded a peerage in 2020, as he could also be stripped of his title. She said there's definite interest from across the Commons and even the Lords to put in place a mechanism that would deal with the issue of people who have not lived up to public expectation. Ms Maskell said, Back in February, when we had the focus on the court case, which was being brought against Prince Andrew, my constituents responded that 80% of people wanted the association with the current Duke of York to be broken. And therefore I met with the clerks here in the Commons to see how it can be achieved. She added, There are no mechanisms in place, even for the monarch, to remove the title. The only real way it could be done is for Prince Andrew to no longer call himself, by choice, the Duke of York. The problem is, particularly with an international city like York, that using a title like the Duke of York is an ambassadorial role. It carries the name of our city across the world. And it's a city which is a human rights city, the only human rights city in England. We're already in a culture clash when we're talking about violence against women and girls and the issues that we're really working hard on in the city about making York a very safe place. She went on, if this principle can be established, then obviously it could have wider implications. Ms Maskell highlighted the case of disgraced peer Lord Nazir Ahmed, adding, therefore it could have wider implications about how the legislation could be then used to remove titles of people who have not lived up to public expectations. Lord Ahmed was convicted earlier this year of twice trying to rape a girl and sexually assaulting a boy under 11 in the early 1970s. In January, Conservative MP for Rother Valley, Alexander Stafford, started a petition in the wake of the verdicts, calling for Lord Ahmed to be stripped of his title. The presentation to Parliament of Ms Maskell's bill, which is due to receive its second reading on December the 9th, comes not long after York Council decided to strip Andrew of his freedom of the city. Prince Andrew had already given up several patronages in both the city and the county in 2019, after stepping down from royal duties due to his relationship with convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. In her lawsuit, Ms Dufresne accused Andrew of sexual abuse, saying the Duke had sex with her when she was 17 and had been trafficked by his friend, the late Mr Epstein. Although the parties settled the case in February, the out-of-court agreement was not an admission of guilt from the Duke, who has always strenuously denied the allegations against him an article issued by the National News Desk. The National Politics on Wednesday the 22nd of June. Tory who called Nicola Sturgeon a drooling hag gets top paid job at Fife Council. An article written by Xander Richards, political reporter. The unionist parties have worked together to elect a Tory who was struck off the teaching register after calling Nicola Sturgeon a drooling hag to a paid role overseeing education in Fife. 
Kathleen Leslie, a Conservative councillor for the Burnt Island, Kinghorn and Western Kirkcaldy Ward, was narrowly elected to be the convener of the Education Scrutiny Committee on Tuesday morning. Ms Leslie's nomination was put forward by Councillor Dave Dempsey, the only other Conservative to sit on the committee, and seconded by Councillor Ord Boobecker Calder, a Lib Dem. After the Tory was nominated, the SNP raised concerns that her past record made it inappropriate for her to convene the Education Committee. Councillor Alicia Hayes, the SNP's nomination for the convener role, told the meeting, Can we be advised if it's competent that a councillor who was suspended by the General Teaching Council for two years is an appropriate person to be nominated as convener of this committee? Ms Leslie agreed to be removed from the teaching register after being reported to the General Teaching Council Scotland over offensive tweets she posted about the First Minister. She called Miss Sturgeon a wee fishwife and a drooling hag in tweets sent ahead of the 2014 vote when the SNP leader was Deputy First Minister. However, concerns were dismissed by council officials who said that as an elected member there was no bar to Ms Leslie holding the convener role. Ms Leslie also refuted claims her appointment would be inappropriate, insisting she had a pretty strong record which showed that she would perform the role well. When it went to a ballot, the Scottish Conservative group leader was elected to the paid convener role by eight votes to seven. While the SNP councillors backed Ms Hayes, every Conservative, Labour and Lib Dem councillor present at the meeting backed Ms Leslie. SNP councillor Craig Walker said the support for Ms Leslie demonstrates just how desperate Labour are to hold on to power in Fife. He added, We wouldn't say that anybody who's been suspended by the Teaching Council should be in a position that is scrutinising education. It beggars belief that the Labour Party would stoop so low as to do this. Labour took control of Fife Council after the local elections in May, despite returning their worst ever result in the former stronghold. The party's 20 councillors controlled the 75-seat council as a minority administration after winning the backing of both the Lib Dems and the Tories. Mr Walker said, Voters will be appalled. The party that said they wouldn't do any deals are doing exactly that, but pretending it's a minority administration. They've got people on the payroll, so the votes are likely to be secure. They're relying on a grand coalition to sustain a minority administration. Ahead of the local elections in May, Scottish Labour leader Anna Sauer said he did not want his councillors striking any formal deals with other parties. As well as Ms Leslie, Fife also has Mr Dempsey, the former Tory group leader, convening the Standards Audit and Risk Committee, a position Mr Walker says has been traditionally held by the main opposition party. The SNP MSP for Kirkcaldy David Torrance said Labour should hang their heads in shame for the deal struck with Tories across Scotland. He said, Just when we thought the Tory and Labour grubby deal in Fife could not get any worse, Kathleen Leslie has been appointed as chair of the Education Scrutiny Committee, despite being struck off the teaching register years ago. Her appointment was even supported by Labour councillors. This is laughable, you couldn't make it up, but it demonstrates the depths that Labour Party will plunge to in order to make a deal with the Tories. This is not the first grubby deal made in Fife between Labour and the Tories, and it certainly will not be the last. Unfortunately for the people of Fife and across many parts of Scotland, it's been vote Labour, get Tory. Anna Sauer should hang his head in shame for supporting the Tories against the people of Scotland. Responding to the criticism, Miss Leslie said, My job is to scrutinise council policy on education. I'm coming at this with a background of five years on the Education and Children's Services Committee. 
I attended every single meeting of that and I have a pretty strong record of scrutinising policy. I intend to scrutinise the Council's policy on education. I'm not here as a mouthpiece for the administration. I'm more than willing to work with the SNP and the Lib Dems on what they want to see scrutinised. Scottish Labour was approached for comment. An article written by Xander Richards. The National News on Wednesday the 22nd of June. Transport Minister presses UK for rail strike settlement. An article written by Alex Evers. Scottish Transport Minister Jenny Gilruth has written to the UK government urging for a settlement to the RMT strikes as quickly as possible. In a letter to the UK Transport Secretary Grant Shapps yesterday, Ms Gilruth called for an end to this dispute, which is causing widespread cancellation across Scotland, despite the Scottish Government having no say in the negotiations. Despite this, the UK Government has refused to intervene, urging rail bosses and unions to agree on a settlement to safeguard the industry's future and telling commuters they should be ready to stay the course. Ms Gilruth's letter to Mr Shapps said... Scotland looks set to be one of the worst affected parts of the UK rail network from today. I'm therefore seeking an urgent undertaking from you that as UK Transport Secretary you will do all that you can to seek a resolution to this dispute as quickly as possible for the benefit of staff and passengers alike. The failure of the UK Government to do more to encourage and enable a settlement of this pay dispute is concerning. The UK government's approach to the network rail dispute appears to be motivated by ideology rather than practicalities. I hope that this is not your view. Network rail workers in Scotland and across the UK rail network have not received a pay rise in over two years. I'm sure that you will agree that this is not an acceptable or sustainable position. I note your intention to drive modernisation on the railways. Modernisation must not come at any cost, and I will again reiterate the Scottish Government's position on this matter, which is that we will not support any reforms which seek to impose compulsory redundancies. Railway staff worked on the front line during the pandemic. Now is a time to recognise these efforts, not to punish workers. As part of the rail review, Scottish ministers and officials presented a clear case for the full devolution of rail powers, but the UK government plan outlined in the White Paper will not deliver this. That is disappointing. I was scheduled to meet Wendy Morton MP later this week. However, Ms Morton has subsequently cancelled the meeting. Given the impact this strike will have on Scotland, I will expect that you will ensure this is rearranged as soon as possible. I furthermore note that planned meetings including the devolved governments have also been cancelled at short notice. I note from your letter that the UK government is committed to working with the railway unions. To that end, I encourage you to instruct Network Rail and the relevant train operating companies to get back around the negotiating table with the RMT. A resolution to this dispute is possible, but you will require to inject the political will, which has thus far clearly been lacking. Workers on train lines and infrastructure across the UK walked out yesterday with further action to come tomorrow and Saturday, leaving ScotRail only able to run services on five routes. The Prime Minister told Cabinet that without fundamental changes to the way the system operates, rail firms risk going bust and passengers face ever higher prices that could ultimately lead to them abandoning train travel. 
He said, we need, I'm afraid, everybody, and I say this to the country as a whole, we need to get ready to stay the course, because these reforms, these improvements in the way we run our railways, are in the interests of the travelling public. They will help to cut costs for fare payers up and down the country. David Lonsdale, director of the Scottish Retail Consortium, said... Retailers in Scotland's city centres were clobbered by the exodus of commuters during the pandemic. Even now, several months on from the end of restrictions, store visits are still shy of pre-Covid levels, with Scotland rooted to the bottom of the UK league table for shopper footfall last month. Many stores are only just beginning to emerge from the long and destabilising impact of the pandemic, and further train disruption could deter shoppers and derail retail's recovery. UK Hospitality Scotland's Leon Thompson predicted the Scottish retail sector could see in excess of £50 million of losses this week. He told BBC Radio Scotland's Good Morning Scotland programme, We're looking at a situation where our fragile businesses are trying to move towards recovery. So it's a very, very difficult week. We're talking about businesses which have had two years of restrictions and lockdowns in place. Gordon Martin, RMT, regional organiser for Scotland, said the strike is the last resort for members and said the union is looking for a meaningful offer to resolve the dispute. He told the programme, this is not the first option, this is the last resort for our members. It's a fight we didn't want, this is a defensive action, but it will be until we get a reasonable settlement and the members have made that abundantly clear to me and others. This is a defensive measure by our members in defence of their jobs, their terms and conditions, and, I would argue, the safety of the rail industry. An article written by Alex Evers. The National News on Wednesday the 22nd of June. Travel chaos to bleed into Wednesday as more cancellations expected. An article written by Ninian Wilson and read by Howell. The largest rail strike for a generation caused severe disruption on Tuesday, with more cancellations happening on Wednesday. Many passengers' journeys took several hours longer than normal, while those who chose to travel by car instead were greeted by a surge in traffic. Just a fifth of trains ran on Tuesday, and half of all lines were closed. Last trains were much earlier than usual, such as London Euston to Glasgow at 1.30pm and London King's Cross to Edinburgh at 2pm. The network was due to shut down at 6.30pm. The chaos will continue on Wednesday, with only 60% of trains running, mainly due to a delay to the start of services as signallers and control room staff are not doing overnight shifts. Some 40,000 members of the Rail Maritime and Transport Union, or RMT, at Network Rail and 13 train operators walked out on Tuesday in a bitter dispute over pay, jobs and conditions. Much of Britain had no passenger services for the entire day, including most of Scotland and Wales, the whole of Cornwall and Dorset, and places such as Chester, Hull, Lincoln and Worcester. Prime Minister Boris Johnson told a meeting of the Cabinet that reforms are vital for the rail industry and passengers. He said, I say this to the country as a whole, we need to get ready to stay the course. To stay the course, because these reforms, these improvements in the way we run our railways, are in the interests of the travelling public. They will help to cut costs for fare payers up and down the country. Usually busy stations such as Glasgow Central were nearly deserted, except for union picket lines. Many people work from home rather than travelling to offices. Strikes are also planned for Thursday and Saturday. 
Labour leader Sir Keir Starmer is considering possible disciplinary action after several of his party's MPs joined picket lines outside stations. He ordered his frontbenchers not to join picket lines as the Tories have looked to use the row to claim Labour is supporting travel chaos. RMT General Secretary Mick Lynch warned that the dispute could continue for months. The union has been asked by Network Rail to attend formal consultation talks next month on introducing modern working practices. Network Rail official Tim Shoveller said the changes will mean dumping outdated working practices and introducing new technology. He added, We expect this will reduce roles by around 1,800, the vast majority of which will be lost through voluntary severance and natural wastage. An article written by Ninian Wilson. Forwarded from the National on the 23rd of June 2022. From the National, from the Culture Section. Recorded by Amy. Our exhibition to take over Edinburgh's Botanic Garden this summer. By Emma Louise Riley. Turner Prize nominees will be displaying their work at a massive exhibition in Edinburgh's Royal Botanic Gardens. In the eddy of the stream will feature art from the collective's Sayika and cooking sections ranging from sculptures to installations to audio pieces. As part of the Climate House programme, the exhibition aims to draw connections between Scotland and Palestine while bringing attention to the harm ecosystems are facing and the effects this could have on the world. Cooking section said the exhibition at Climate House has been a great opportunity to interlink botanical struggles between Scotland and Palestine. It's a culmination of a three-year research process with scientists, botanists and researchers that expands the work we've been doing in Sky since 2016. We are excited to exhibit alongside Saikaya, who have been a source of inspiration in the way they work critically across heritage, food, farming, art and culture to reimagine relations between people and their surroundings under the occupation, and more importantly, how to open up new horizons from the ground up. Cooking Sections worked alongside Royal Botanic Garden of Edinburgh, RBGE, Dr Chris Ellis, as well as horticulturists and archivists during a three-year research project showing the interdependent relationship between Scotland, Scottish wild salmon and forests ahead of the exhibition of their work, Salmo Breeding Forest. Palestine Art Collective, Sakaya, explores the role of plants in connection to land struggles in its home country. Using sound and other media, it looks to highlight how botany has become integral to the conflict in the country by highlighting historical and modern stories such as how the British ruled culturally significant plants as weeds in the 1900s. Sakaya said, as part of her practice to challenge botanical imperialist practices of taming the wild greenwashing, Western classification systems, erasure of plants, stories and practices, and modernist notions of agricultural productivity, we present 33 weeds that were brought under attack during the British Mandate period in Palestine. Through a communal practice to identify historic and new botanical imaginaries, stories will be collected and composed in Palestine about these 33 weeds throughout the exhibition period and sent to the Climate House to be presented alongside the original weed pressings found in the RBGE archive. The exhibition is part of the Edinburgh Art Festival. In the Eddy of the Stream will run from July 1st to September 18th at RBGE's Climate House, formerly in Relief House. More information on the exhibition can be found at the Edinburgh Art Festival's website. That article was by Emma Louise Riley.
Recorded from the National on the 22nd of June 2022. From the Culture section. Recorded by Amy. Films document former coal mining communities in lockdown by Sean Bell. A series of films giving voice to Scotland's former coal mining communities will next week be screened at a special event in Edinburgh. Taking place at the capital's Scottish Storytelling Centre, the evening will include three films from Auchinleck, Kelty and Whitburn, produced as part of the films in action series as a collaboration between Coalfields Regeneration Trust, Regional Screen Scotland, Folk Film Gathering and Screen Scotland. The project highlights the inequalities which continue to affect the, national, the nation's former coal mining communities and how they've been exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic, while also demonstrating the creativity, adaptability and resilience of their residents in supporting the most vulnerable amongst them. For the past two years, filmmakers Anne Milne and Shona Thompson have been documenting stories of lockdown through 15 films made by living community groups throughout Scotland. The three featured films will be introduced by some of the individuals who made and took part in them. Thompson commented, giving voice to the Coalfield communities has always been at the heart of the film, Films of Action project. My filmmaking colleague Anne Milne and I feel honoured to have witnessed people telling their stories through filmmaking. Bringing the films to the big screen in Edinburgh on 29th of June shows the power of coming together to listen, share and discuss what's important to focus resources and energy on right now in our communities. Nikki Wilson of Coalfields Regeneration Trust added, These films are a real testament to the resilience and resourcefulness of Scottish Coalfield communities, even in the face of lockdown. As well as celebrating this community spirit, the film screening will provide a great opportunity for a dialogue around how to help former coal mining communities to thrive in the future. Tickets for Films of Action, Coalfield Communities and Lockdown can be purchased on the Scottish Storytelling Centre website. Audience are asked to wear face masks unless exempt. The article was by Sean Bell. Recorded from the National on the 23rd of June 2022. From the Culture section. Recorded by Amy. Glasgow production Freedom Scripted Company wins funding from Channel 4 by Craig Meehan. A Scottish production company has said it's thrilled after receiving a funding boost from Channel 4. Glasgow-based Freedom Scripted won cash from the broadcaster's Indie Growth Fund. The independent firm was founded in 2018 by former BBC, STV and World Productions development producer Mike Ellen. Freedom Scripted focuses on high-end contemporary drama and has a range of projects currently in development. Developments include an adaptation of Sarah Moss's critically acclaimed novel Summer Water by John Donnelly, Southside, a Glasgow-set crime thriller from up-and-coming writer Rashi Hamid, and Berlin-based showrunning team Harry Bose and Unseen, a fresh take on invisibility from BAFTA-winning Welsh writer Alan Harris. Head of Channel 4's Indie Growth Fund, Caroline Murphy, said, Mike has a proven track record having been involved in some of the biggest TV drama during his career spanning more than 20 years. Freedom Scripted is at a really exciting moment in its journey, and I'm delighted Mike's company is joining the Indie Growth Fund. Our investment will provide the opportunity to make some key hires and take this business onto the next level. Ellen, CEO and Creative Director at Freedom Scripted, said, we're thrilled to be joining the Indie Growth Fund at a perfect time for freedom and very much look, looking forward to working with Caroline and the brilliant team at Channel 4. 
Having built a strong slate of dramas with writers we love and with much more to come, I'm confident this investment will enable us to go to the next level and produce entertaining and talked about shows we can be proud of from all of the UK. Before founding Freedom Scripted, Ellen was head of development at the Oscar-winning indie production On the Corner. He was previously part of the team at the BBC, which greenlit a host of hit shows including Murder, Peaky Blinders, Wallander and Shetland. During his time there, he also produced 50 episodes of Long Runner River City. At STV, Mike worked as script editor on iconic Scottish dramas Taggart and Rebus, as well as BAFTA-winning High Times. The addition of Freedom Scripted takes the current portfolio of companies in the Channel 4 IGF to 18, with 10 companies having joined since 2020. That article was by Craig Meehan. From the National on the 22nd of June 2022, from the Culture section, recorded by Amy. Film to explore African crew members of explorer David Livingston, by Jane MacLeod. A film and piece of music that tells the untold stories of Scottish explorer David Livingston's African crew members has been commissioned by the David Livingston Birthplace, DLB Exchange Group. The group hopes to enable community groups to explore experiences of empire, migration and life in Britain through their collections. The film by artist Mara Menzies and music by composer Gamelli Tordsro will premiere on June 25th in a special community-led event as part of Refugee Festival Scotland. The works will be at the David Livingston Birthplace Museum at a special Tinga Tinga party event which will feature an afternoon of live music, art, film, food and storytelling. Alistair Campbell, Community and Partnerships Officer at DLB, said, It's been a huge pleasure bringing the group together and being part of their journey researching our collection. The group are incredibly talented and we have learned a lot from them over the last six months. We are so grateful for their generosity and dedication in bringing this vital project together and supporting our ongoing efforts to decolonise our museum. We're delighted to be hosting the Tinga Tinga party to celebrate the exchange group achi- group's achievements and share their important work with wider audiences. The DLB exchange group is one of seven projects hosted at different museums around the UK as part of the community-led collections research project. The project, funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council, brings together six participants to look at how creative responses to the museum's collection can be used to speak to different African cultures, communities and individuals that Livingston encountered and worked with. The participants have selected objects from the DLB's collection to reveal new stories relating to Livingston's African crew members. The group looked closely at a largely undocumented object in the collection, a fibrous urn belonging to Abdullah Suzy and James Chuma, two of Livingston's most valued crew members. The group asked what everyday objects can reveal about the experience of African community groups and individuals that supported Livingston. Inspired by the findings, the DLB have commissioned storyteller Mara Menzies to reimagine Susie and Chuma's story through film. The film will later feature as a permanent part of the exhibition and hopes to highlight the vital role of crew members and correct the narrative of Livingston as a lone hero. Artist and member of the DLB, Josie Coe, said, working with this group and looking at the realities of Livingston's story has taught me about how racist narratives and colonial strategies have been implemented in Scottish history. 
What I've enjoyed about this project is discovering the truth about Livingston's impact and exposing the stories of the hidden African figures who were previously unknown to me. The article was by Jane McLeod. The National, June 23. Light is on for Scotland. Report by Craig Meehan. Scotland's historical ties to Europe are to be celebrated tonight at an event that will hear from European citizens on why there's still a place for Scotland in the EU. Coinciding with the sixth anniversary of the Brexit vote, Europe for Scotland will host The Light is Still On, Why Scotland Matters to Europeans at 8pm. Independence Live will be live streaming the event on YouTube, which can also be watched on the National's Facebook page. It will be presented by National columnist Leslie Riddle and will hear from people across Europe on their affection for Scotland. Viewers will also hear about the campaign group's plans for the future, including a 2023 report to be sent to Brussels on Scotland's place in the European Union. Europe for Scotland's Joint European Coordinator Andrea Pizarro and Nina Jetta told The National the event is a place to celebrate Scotland's ties with Europe. Pizarro, a researcher from Rome who spent three years living in Glasgow, said he got involved in the grassroots organisation after feeling that Scotland was treated unfairly after Brexit. He said, We thought it was important to make a statement and support Scotland if it wants to rejoin the EU. So we recruited the people across Europe, intellectuals and citizens, that wanted to support our call. We have been trying to build a pan-European campaign that defends Scotland's right to choose its own future. Jetta, a translator from Germany, who currently stays in Oxford, said Brexit had affected the pair emotionally, with both still living in the UK, adding that they felt compelled to act after the 2016 vote. She said that Scotland wants to move in the right direction and wants to create a better future which brought her hope. Europe for Scotland will lobby the EU and urge politicians in Brussels to be more assertive in their support for the country rejoining the bloc. Pizarro explained, We want EU politicians to say what we think a lot of European citizens have been thinking, that Scotland should be welcomed in the EU. We would like them to be expressing this in an explicit manner, even ahead of the referendum. If they think that Scotland would make a good member of the European Union, they should say so. We are getting in touch with parliamentarians in Brussels to explain to them that Scotland rejoining the EU would not just be good for Scotland, it would be good for the EU itself. We think that Scotland will be an active member in terms of respecting democracy and rule of law. Scotland would add to the energy transition and would help its excellent immigration system.
So it would be profoundly transformative if Scotland would rejoin the EU. And on another level, we would like to promote a sense of solidarity and express the desire to see Scotland rejoining and talk about Scottish culture, which has been so important in European history. Pissarro said that Europe for Scotland plans to send a report to the EU in 2023, written by citizens across Europe, to express its views that Scotland would be beneficial to the European project. There is widespread support for Scotland rejoining the EU, even if they don't always say it out loud, according to the researcher. And he continued, We believe there is a lot of silent support. In Brussels there are a lot of people that will tell you off the record that of course Scotland would be welcome but they wouldn't dare say it explicitly. Jetta agreed, saying there is enormous affection for Scotland across Europe. Jetta encourages viewers to watch live at 8pm tonight, saying people can ask speakers questions if they do so. The event will also be available to watch at a later date on Independence Live's YouTube channel. Pizarro said that while Thursday is a sad day because it is the sixth anniversary of the Brexit referendum, he wants it to be a celebration of Scotland's ties with Europe. A Europe for Scotland spokesperson said, We are having this event on the anniversary of the Brexit refer referendum, which is to us the anniversary of the injustice of Scotland being dragged out of the EU against its democratic will. We want to turn the anniversary of a sad day into a celebration of Scotland's ties with Europe. During the event, voices of Europeans from different countries will express why Scotland matters to them at a personal level and why they feel strongly about Scotland's right to choose its own future post-Brexit. We will also present our campaign plans in preparation to IndyRef2, and we will show a clip from our latest video by Billy Kay about Scottish culture influence in Europe over centuries. The light is still on. Why Scotland Matters to Europeans will be live streamed on the Nationals Facebook page and on the Independence Live YouTube channel. Report by Craig Meehan The National, June 23 Bill of Rights shocking and unnecessary, says Christina McKelvey Report by Adam Robertson Legislation proposing a new British Bill of Rights is shocking and unnecessary, Scotland's Equalities Minister has said. UK Justice Secretary Dominic Raab said the new bill would restore a healthy dose of common sense to the justice system after its publication on Wednesday. The legislation is set to work as a successor to the Human Rights Act and asserts that the Supreme Court is the ultimate decision maker on human rights issues in the UK. It also notes how the country does not have to follow case law from the European Court of Human Rights, 
the ECHR. It was the Strasbourg Court which recently intervened to prevent asylum seekers being sent on a one-way flight to Rwanda. Minister for Equalities and Older People, Christina McKelvey said, this shocking and unnecessary legislation seeks to put UK ministers above some of the most fundamental checks and balances that underpin our democracy. The fact remains that we do not need a new Bill of Rights. The Human Rights Act is one of the most important laws passed by the UK Parliament. For more than 20 years, it has delivered fairness and justice, protecting our rights to privacy, liberty, freedom of expression and peaceful protest. Rab looked to assure MPs that the new legislation would not result in the UK having to leave the ECHR, which underpins both human rights and peace in Northern Ireland. McKelvey added, the UK government's Rwanda policy has been challenged in the European Court of Human Rights. This legislation appears to be part of its response, an attempt to remove safeguards protecting every member of our society. As a founding signatory of the ECHR, the UK government should be championing international human rights standards and the rule of law. Instead, its ministers appear intent on damaging the UK's global reputation. Devolved administrations are asked to consent on Westminster legislation that will have an impact on devolved areas, but the votes of legislative consent motions are not binding, meaning the UK government is not required to heed the will of Scotland, Wales or Northern Ireland's governments. The bill proposals to swap out the Human Rights Act in the Scotland Act, the legislation which created the Scottish Parliament, and replace it with the Bill of Rights. Report by Adam Robertson. The National, June 23. SNP tax jibe sees Prime Minister repeat falsehood. Report by Hamish Morrison. Boris Johnson has again been accused of peddling falsehoods in Parliament after falsely claiming taxes are higher in Scotland than in the rest of the UK. During an exchange with SNP Westminster leader Ian Blackford on Wednesday, the Prime Minister repeated untrue claims that taxes are higher in Scotland than in any other part of the UK. Blackford took the Tory leader to task over the dismal state of the UK economy, which is seeing inflation rocket as wages stagnate and growth slows. Brexit was contributing to the gathering financial storm, said Blackford, highlighting a report from the Resolution Foundation and the London School of Economics, which shows Brexit was punishing workers by driving down wages and pushing up the rate of inflation. He accused the Prime Minister of willfully pushing the country into a recession. Blackford said, This morning's report from the Resolution Foundation and the London School of Economics 
is the latest in a string of devastating reports on the outlook for the UK economy. But instead of reversing course, the Prime Minister is recklessly threatening a trade war at the worst possible time. Will he finally come to his senses and negotiate an economic agreement with the EU? Or is he going to willfully push the UK into recession? Earlier in the session, Blackford asked whether Johnson held himself responsible for the fact that the United Kingdom is doing so much worse than our European neighbours. The Prime Minister responded, Actually, I think the whole House knows, and the whole country knows, we have got a global inflationary problem, but this government has the fiscal firepower to deal with it. And that is, I think, a benefit to the whole of the United Kingdom, including Scotland, as we have seen throughout the pandemic. And I think it's a matter of fact that taxes are actually highest of all in Scotland. Blackford replied bluntly, that is not true. It is not the first time the Prime Minister has used this line of attack, employing it in an interview with BBC Scotland in 2019. An investigation by the ferret at the time branded the claim mostly false, noting that while higher earners in Scotland did pay more in taxes, many Scots did not. The Consumer Advocacy Group, which online tax calculator, shows people on lower incomes will pay less in Scotland in the current financial year. Someone making £17,000 in Scotland would pay £865.03 in income tax in a year, compared with someone on the same salary in RUK who would pay £886. For those earning a salary of £27,000 per year, £2,882.07 would go to the taxman for a Scottish worker, compared with someone in England who would pay £2,886. Those on higher salaries pay more in Scotland than they do in England, with those on a salary of £45,000 paying £6,929.67 in Scottish income tax versus £6,486 in our UK. The SNP chair of the Holyrood Finance Committee, Kenneth Gibson, rubbished Johnson's claims, saying Scotland had created a fairer and more progressive tax system which protects lower and middle earners while raising extra revenue to invest in public services to help the hardest pressed. The majority of Scottish taxpayers, 54%, will pay less income tax in 2022-23 than they would if they lived elsewhere in the UK for the fifth consecutive year. Those living in Scotland continue to have access to a wider and better funded range of free to access public services than in the rest of the UK, including universal free prescriptions and tuition fees. And under the SNP average council tax bills 
are an average of £619 lower in Scotland than in England, and people pay less on average on rail fares and water bills. Meanwhile, last week's Scottish Government paper, refreshing the case for independence, showed that resource-rich Scotland is, under Westminster rule, lagging so far behind almost all of our European neighbours on a range of economic league tables. Many of our European neighbours are wealthier, fairer and happier than the UK, and they show what Scotland can achieve with the powers of independence, he said. Report by Hamish Morrison The National, June 23 Sunak in Aberdeen for Oil and Gas Summit amid frosty welcome. Report by Hamish Morrison Embattled Chancellor Rishi Sunak is expected to host a meeting with oil and gas chiefs in Aberdeen today after announcing a raid on their profits in a last-ditch attempt to head off the cost-of-living crisis. Sunak, who has been embroiled in personal scandal in recent months, as well as fending off attacks for his sluggish response to spiralling costs and slow growth, will face North Sea industry leaders after announcing a windfall tax on their profits last month. Sunak's political fortunes were sunk earlier this year when it was revealed his wife was involved in a legal tax avoidance scheme and he was fined for breaking COVID rules during lockdown. Oil and gas firms such as BP, Shell and Harbour Energy are reported by the Financial Times to be attending the meeting having hit out at the 25% tax on their profits. The paper reports he is attempting to smooth relations with the industry after flip-flopping on a windfall tax. And he faces a frosty reception from the SNP MP for Aberdeen South, Stephen Flynn, who said the Chancellor had a cheek to position himself as a champion of North Sea energy. Said Flynn, for too long his government has siphoned off profits from Scotland's resources while failing to invest in our energy sector and net zero future. The reality is Scotland has the energy, it just needs the power. The energy levy on oil and gas firms is expected to pay for a £5 billion cost-of-living support package, but also features an allowance to give companies a tax incentive to invest in projects that cut emissions. Sunak said, The North Sea will be the foundation of the UK's energy supply in the decades to come, as we transition to cleaner ways to fuel our country. It is vital we encourage continued investment by the oil and gas industry in the North Sea and our new investment allowance provides huge tax reliefs for projects that cut emissions. I look forward to hearing about the projects Scottish industry have planned as they continue to lead the charge to net zero 
with new innovations and investment. But the Chancellor was told the Tories had failed to deliver tangible support for Aberdeen, despite the city having bankrolled his government to the tune of nearly £400 billion over the years, according to Flynn. We reported previously how the northeast of Scotland, where thousands of jobs linked to the oil and gas sector, has been shortchanged by the UK government, failing to match the Scottish government's investments and not replacing EU funds. Flynn added, His government has faced repeated calls to match the Scottish government's £500 million Just Transition Fund to back carbon capture in the North East and to change his investment allowances plan to encourage renewables development. Yet despite the cash he is counting in the Treasury, he sat on his hands. The Chancellor has the flexibility because of the taxes generated in the North East to properly invest in her next zero future and to put cash in the pockets of families who have been hit hard by his cost of living crisis. His visit to our city must be a turning point. We are the oil and gas capital of Europe. But if we are serious about becoming the net zero capital of Europe, then we must be top of the list for investment. Report by Hamish Morrison. And that was this week's The National Podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.